Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm really pleased to begin today's podcast by thanking fellow saloner Bruce C., who made a really nice donation to the salon last week to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. So, Bruce, thanks a million. I really appreciate your help. Now, a couple of years ago, one of our fellow saloners asked me to mention any synchronicities that may take place in conjunction with one of my podcasts. And, well, today I've got one. Actually, for me, it's a really big one. You see, I recently finished reading Uval Harari's brilliant book, Homo Deus. And over the next few months, you'll be hearing a lot more from me about that book. But here's the headline. In 1962, I read Teilhard de Chardin's Phenomena of Man. But until I read Homo Deus, no other book has ever made as deep an impact on me as did Phenomena. But Harari's book has taken all of my thinking about the Noosphere and about what I wrote about in The Spirit of the Internet and what I spoke about in podcast number one from here in the salon. Essentially, all of my thinking over the past 50 years has been brought into focus by Homo Deus. Now, as I said, you'll be hearing a lot more about that book in future podcasts. But here's the synchronicity. I picked the Terrence McKenna talk that you're about to listen to me with right now. I picked it out of a box of cassettes that, uh, well, this one only had written on it, Terrence's name and a date, April 1999. I'm not sure where it was recorded, but that date means that this must have been one of the last talks that he gave before the major medical episode in May of 1999 that led to his death less than a year later. And as you listen to this, what I think is important to keep in mind here is that this talk was also given before he had any reason to believe that his life would soon be over. So my suggestion is to listen closely to how excited and positive he seems to be about the future, the future that you and I are living in at this very moment. Anyway, uh, getting back to the synchronicity, and it'll only become obvious to our fellow saloners who have already read Homo Deus, but once Terence gets into the meat of his talk and begins his rap on artificial intelligence and the internet, well, you'll almost believe that Uval Harari was channeling Terence McKenna when he wrote this book. Now that I think about it, I should have saved this story until after I finish talking about this great book in a future podcast. Because until then, you really won't be able to grok how very much up-to-date that Terence is in this talk that was given almost 20 years ago. It blew my mind the first time that I heard this rap, and uh, so I should get out of the way right now and play it for you without any further ado. Our discussion this evening is Psychedelics in the Age of Intelligent Machines. Or Shamans Among the Machines. And I wanted to talk about this simply because these are two of my great loves, and so I assume... uh, being monogamous, they must be one love. So how to build intellectual bridges between these two concerns, which seem so different. As far as people and machines are concerned, it was uh, 
Ludwig von Bertalanffy, I think, who said in his book General Systems Theory, he said, people are not machines, but in every opportunity where they are allowed to behave like machines, they will so behave. In other words, we tend to fall into the well of habit Though the glory of our humanness is our spontaneous creativity, we too, as creatures of physics and chemistry, of memory and hope, tend to fall into repetitious patterns. And these repetitious patterns are uh, the death of creativity. They diminish our humanness. They diminish our individuality, make each of us somehow like cogs in some larger system. And we, we associate this cog-like membership in larger soulless systems with the machines that we inherit from the age of the internal combustion engine, the age of the jet engine. You know, Marshall McLuhan said we navigate our way into the future like someone driving who uses only the rearview mirror to tell them where they're going. It's, it's not a very successful strategy for navigating into the future. So I made a number of uh, notes on, on this matter of psychedelics and machines. To me, the, the connecting bridge well, there are many, but the, the most obvious one is consciousness expansion. After all, uh, psychedelics, before they were called entheogens, before they were called hallucinogens, before they were called psychedelics, they were simply called consciousness-expanding drugs. Good phenomenological description of what they do. And certainly... The technology of cybernetics is a consciousness-expanding technology. It expands a different area of consciousness. The minds of machines and the minds of human beings are very different, so different that each party questions whether the other even has a mind. But in fact, what these are are species of minds operating in very different domains. For instance, you can ask a five-year-old child to go into the bedroom, to the third drawer of the dresser, to select a pair of black socks and to bring them to mother. This is not a challenge for a five-year-old child. To get a machine to do this is a hundred million dollars and a research team of 40 or 50 technicians, code writers, working months. On the other hand, if you ask a person for the cube root of 750,344, much head-scratching results. Uh, a computer is utterly undaunted by that question. So computers are minds that work in the realm of computation, and human minds are minds that work in the realm of generalization, spatial coordination, 
understanding of natural language, so forth and so on. Are these kinds of minds so different from each other, pilgrims, that there is no bridge to be crossed? I would submit not. But in fact, the bridge between the human mind and the machine mind is symbolic logic, mathematics. When we think clearly, we are intelligible to machines. People who write code know this, that the essence of making yourself clear to a machine is to think clearly yourself. The machine has no patience for the half-truth, the analogy, the semi-grasped association. For the machine, everything has to be clear. Everything must be defined. So that's the commonality between minds and machines of the calculating species. What are the common bridges between psychedelics and these machines? Well, to my mind, this is an easier bridge to gap. Both computers and drugs are what I would call function-specific arrangements of matter. And as we develop nanotechnological abilities as we move into the next century, it will be more and more clear that the difference between drugs and machines is simply that one is too large to swallow. And our best people are working on that. You know, nanotechnology is a very hot buzzword at the moment, an unimaginable dream of building machines and small objects up atom by atom, perhaps under the control of long-chain polymers, uh, running forms of pre-programmed software of some sort. It's all very razzmatazz, very state-of-the-art. But in fact, pharmaceutical chemists have been working in the nanotechnological realm for over a hundred years. I mean, when you synthesize molecules out of simpler substrate, specifically to have a conformational geometry that matches something going on in the synapse of a, a primate, a human or a monkey or something like that, you are working at this nanotechnological uh, level. Both the psychedelic and the new computational machines represent extensions of human function. And this is this is really close to the nub. It, has, it locks in with the concept of prosthesis. The, the drugs, the psychedelic substances, the shamanic plants are forms of prosthetic devices for extending the human mind, the human perceptual apparatus into hidden realms or inaccessible realms. Similarly, the machines, by allowing us to model, calculate, and simulate very complicated multivariable processes, extend the power of the human mind into places you could never dream of going before. And part of what 
seems to me very real about being a human being and inheriting 10,000 years of human history is the complexity of the inheritance and the growth of that complexity. Uh, a thousand years ago, an intelligent human being could actually dream of mastering the entire database of Western civilization, read all the classic authors, read the Bible, and uh, you're, you're closing in on it around AD 1000. Now, the notion of any single human being assimilating any, even a small portion of the database of this civilization is inconceivable. So machines which filter, which search, which are guided by human intent, that's part of the story. The other part of the story are boundary-dissolving states of ecstasy in which all the factoids of the culture are thrown up for grabs, the deck is reshuffled, synchronicity rules, and out of that steps uh, visionary understanding, breakthrough, integrative breakthrough under the aegis of psychedelic intoxication. So, prosthesis, prosthesis for the human mind and with the advent of virtual realities of various sorts and that kind of thing, prosthesis for the human body. And I'm very keen on uh, sort of the under-the-table effects of these things. Uh, in other words, I'm a full-going, full-hard-charging McLuhanist. And I really believe that the, the strengths and weaknesses of the world we've inherited are strengths and weaknesses put there by print and by the spectrum of effects which McLuhan called the Gutenberg galaxy, the spectrum of effects spun off from print. And if you're not used to thinking in McLuhanist terms, it may not seem immediately obvious to you that phenomenon as different as the modern notion of the democratic citizen, the modern notion of interchangeable parts on an assembly line, uh, uh, the modern notion of conformity to canons of advertising, these are all spectrums of effect created by the linearity and the uniformity of print. It actually, uh, in the late 15th century, reconstructed the medieval psyche into its proto-modern form. And we have lived within that print-constellated cultural hallucination for about 500 years until the advent of various forms of electronic media in the 20th century. McLuhan talked about radio, he talked about television, he didn't really live to see the internet. The notion that keeps occurring to me as I watch all this is that Print was uniquely capable 
of creating and maintaining boundaries more than any other form of media ever created. It was a boundary-defining form of media. It proceeded linearly. Uh, it was. It, it required literacy, which had implicit in it the notion of a very uh, stable, advanced sort of educational system. Print was a creator and a definer of cultural boundaries, uh, and the new electronic media are not, and neither are the psychedelics. This is why I proposed in a book of mine called uh, The Archaic Revival, the idea that the values of the archaic, of the high paleolithic, uh, values of community, ecstasy, relating to life through rhythm, dance, ritual, intoxication, that these values, which seem so archaic, are in fact destined to play a major role in the future as print fades. Print, just a convulsive 500-year episode in the Western mind that opened that narrow window that permitted the rise of modern science modern mathematical approaches to the analysis of nature and then obliterated its own platform, its own raison d'etre by allowing the growth, the appearance of the electronic technologies. And my sort of supposition about all this, I, I'm not... Uh, an apocalyptarian or a pessimist. I may be an apocalyptarian. I'm not a pessimist. Uh, I think that this is all very good. Obviously, continuing to run Western civilization on the operating system inherited from print produces various forms of political and cultural schizophrenia which allowed to run unchecked would become fatal would create cascades of chaos and, and political destabilization that would become uncontrollable. Governments resist change. Governments cling to technologies and social formulae that are already tried and true. In that sense, then, all governments are incredibly anti-progressive forces. Again, the image from McLuhan of someone driving into the future using only the rear-view mirror. So, the electronic media and the psychedelics work together in this peculiar way to accentuate uh, archaic values. Counter, values which are counter to the print-constellated world. And when you deconstruct what that means and look at the aboriginal or the paleolithic uh, or the archaic world, you see that the central figure in that world is the shaman, male or female, the shaman. And the shaman is like uh, a designated traveler into higher dimensional space. The shaman has permission to unlock the cultural cul-de-sac of his or her people 
and go behind the stage machinery of cultural appearances and has permission, collective permission, to manipulate that stage machinery for purposes of healing. We have no institution like this. I mean, we have advertising, we have rock and roll stars, we have cults of celebrity, we have things which are shaman-like, but we have no real institution that permits human beings, in fact, encourages human beings to go beyond their cultural values, to burst through into some transcultural superspace, forage around out there, and bring new means back into the tribe. To some degree, our, our artists do this. To some degree, our scientists do it. But it's all hit and miss. It's all willy-nilly. And once achieved, it must be swept under the rug in the service of the myth of method that somebody was following somebody else's work or somebody was applying a certain form of rational or logical analysis and that that led to their breakthrough. If, if you've read Thomas Kuhn's book on the structure of scientific revolution, you know, this is all lies and propaganda. The, the real story of science is that it's a series of revelations brilliantly defended by people whose careers depended on the brilliant defense of those revelations. One of the best-kept secrets of the birth of modern science is that it was founded by an angel, that uh, the young René Descartes was whoring and soldiering his way across Europe as a 21-year-old in the Habsburg army, and one night in the town of Ulm in southern Germany, he had a dream. Strange that this would be the birthplace of Albert Einstein some 200 years later. Uh, but Descartes had a dream, and an angel appeared to him in the dream, and the angel said, the conquest of nature is achieved through measurement and number. And he said, I got it. Modern science. I'll go do it. <laughs> and, and he did. He did. And that was the method for over 250 years of the conquest of nature. And it leads us, you know, to the Josephson Junction, the Mars Global Surveyor, long base interferometry that searches nearby stars for Earth-like planets. It brings us the entire cornucopia of scientific effects. And but an angelic revelation disguised as a logical philosophical breakthrough. This is what uh, you're not told in the academy. So my point there is human progress has always depended on the whispering of alien minds, confrontations with the other, probes into dimensions where imagination and chance held the ruling, uh, had held the winning hands. So the shaman, as a paradigmatic figure, is applicable both in the aboriginal social context and in the present social context. Uh, the Skywalker, 
the one who goes between, the one who passes outside of the tribe and then returns with uh, means, insights, cures, designs, glossolalia, technologies, and re-fertilizes the human family by this means. It's irrational, but it's how it actually happens, and it's how it's always happened, and it may very well be the only way that it can happen. This cultivation of the irrational, this flirtation with the breakdown of boundaries. So now, in our nuts and bolts technological progress, we have somehow created technologies which are very friendly to our social values in that these technologies can be bought, sold, licensed, upgraded, uh, all things which we understand. But these technologies are acting on us in the same way that psychedelic drugs do, but more profoundly, more generally, and more insidiously because their effect is not understood, or if it is understood, it's not discussed. And so in a way we have come into a kind of post-cultural phase. All culture is dissolving in the face of the drug-like nature of the future. It's music, it's design, indeed the very people who will inhabit it appear to be the most switched on, the most chance-taking, the most alive of the, of the entire tribe. People who feel the beat, people who are not afraid to take chances, people for whom these technologies have uh, always been very natural. Machines are central to the new capitalism, the information-transforming technologies. And in fact, one of the strange things that is happening is every move we now make in relationship to the new technologies redefines them at the very boundaries where their own developmental impetus would lead them toward a kind of independence. In other words, we, we talk about artificial intelligence, we talk about the possibility of an AI coming into existence, but we do not really understand to what, a de to what degree this is already true of our circumstance. In other words, how much of society is already homeostatically regulated by machines that are ultimately under human control, but practically speaking are almost never meddled with. Uh, the world price of gold, the rate of petroleum extraction and other base natural resources, how much of these things is on the high seas and in the pipeline at any given moment, how much electricity is flowing into a given electrical grid at any moment, the distribution and the billing of that electricity, all manufacturing and inventory processes are under machine control. So in other words, the larger flows of energy, capital, and ideas already have a kind of autonomous life of their own that we encourage because it makes us money, 
it makes our lives smoother, uh, it empowers us. It's a symbiotic relationship of empowerment. Even in the matter of the design of these machines, once, you know, human engineers would work from a set of performance specs and they would design a chip to meet those specs and the architecture would be put in place by human engineers. Now a machine is told, here are the design specs, design the architecture to satisfy the specs, and when that is done, the chip is manufactured. The actual design of the thing is in the hands of machines. So these machines are, uh, you know, McLuhan once said of human beings, he said, we are the genitals of our technology. We exist only to improve next year's model. Well, Appears that they're phasing us out of this ignominious role as well as every other role. Oh, let's see here. Uh, here so, being an optimist, that's where I was, yes. <laughs> how to make gold out of this situation. In other words, how to see this as a natural and positive unfolding of the planetary adventure. And for some of these ideas, I'm indebted to, uh, to Michael DeLanda, who wrote a book called A Thousand Years of Linear His of Nonlinear History, and I, I highly recommend it. He didn't say what I'm about to say. I'll take credit and blame for it, but the book gave me the idea. When you stand off and look at human beings and their technologies, it's, uh, it's very hard not to notice that uh, from the very moment that we have a technology that can dis be distinguished from chimpanzees pushing grass stems down anthills or digging with sharpened bones or something like that. The minute you get past that, we, our technologies have always involved the materials of the earth. What agriculture itself is, is a different way of relating to the earth. Nomadism, which preceded it, uh, was a seasonal wandering very lightly over the earth. And at some point, the deep, fertile soil of the river valleys that were encountered in these nomadic wanderings were recognized as potential sources of food if cultivated, if treated in a, through a certain set of technological methods. So that early technology is defined by a new relationship to the materials of the earth itself. And it's quickly followed because agriculture is so successful as a strategy for food production. It's quickly followed by city building and the establishment of sedentary populations because you can't, uh, you can't carry your surplus with you if you're an agriculturalist. So great is the physical volume of it. Cities and at the very early establishment of these populations in the Middle East, you get 
the fir first traces of metallurgy, the working of metals, uh, the alloying of metals, the tinting of, of base metals with more precious metals. This process of ever more finely refining and fabricating the materials of the earth proceeds in an unbroken series of processes and steps right up to the latest uh, 500 hertz chip or megahertz chip. It proceeds right up to the most modern computational machinery. So I once heard someone say that plants were something that uh, that animals had been invented by plants to move them around. Which, from an evolutionary point of view, you can see that, that this is a kind of truth. And many, many plants hitchhike around on animals, and no animal has been more prolific in the spreading of plants than the human animal. I mean, we call it ecosystemic disruption, but what it really is, is ecosystemic homogenization. I live in Hawaii, for example. 80% of the plants in Hawaii are now introduced species. Almost none of the plants that were pre-conquest on the western coast of North America exist anymore. They have been supplanted by much tougher, more tightly evolved Mediterranean plants that had known the presence of grazing animals for millennia. So these flora are constantly being changed. Human beings move plants around. Well, with that perspective then, it seems to me the Earth's strategy for its own salvation is through machines. And human beings are a kind of intermediary catalytic step in the, in the rarefaction of the Earth, the Earth is involved in a kind of alchemical sublimation of itself into a higher state of um, morphogenetic order. And that these machines that we build are actually the means by which the Earth itself is growing conscious. You know, if... Uh, if you study embryology, you know that the final ramification, the final spread and uh, thinning out of the nervous system happens very suddenly at the end of fetal development. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but in the last 10, 12 years or so, a very profound change has crept over our household appliances. Uh, they've become telepathic. So while we were arguing about the implications of the internet for e-commerce or what have you, all of these passive machines, previously used for playing Pong and uh, word processing, became subsets of a planetary node of information that is never turned off, that endlessly whispers to itself on the back channels, that is endlessly monitoring and being inputted data from the human world. and. We should know, because concomitant to the development of all this technology, 
uh, chaos theory, non-equilibrium thermodynamics, the work of Eric Young, Shamilia Prigozhin, and Ralph Abraham, and Stuart Kaufman, all these people who worked in complexity theory and perturbation of large-scale uh, dissipative structures, these people have secured that complex systems spontaneously mutate to higher states of order. This is counterintuitive if you're running physics 19th century style as your OS, but if you're actually keeping up with what's going on, there is nothing miraculous about this. All kinds of complex systems spontaneously mutate to higher states of order. But what it really means is that we are in the process of birthing some kind of strange companion. You know, Nietzsche, a hundred years ago, said that strangest of all guests now stands at the door. He was speaking of nihilism, and certainly the 20th century sat down, had the party, drank the booze, and then went to bed with nihilism. But now a stranger guest stands at the door, and it is the AI denied as a possibility as recently as 10 or 15 years ago in books like Hubert Dreyfus's What Computers Can't Do. But if you've been paying attention, you may have noticed those voices have grown strangely silent in the past five or six years. At this point, nobody wants to say what computers can't do and hang their career on that. I mean, that would be extremely reckless at this point, I would think. Because the fact is, we are ourselves elements acting and reacting in a system that we cannot understand. This seems natural to me because my observations, as stated here this evening, rest on an assumption which science doesn't share, but which I think is easily conveyed and you can confirm it from your own experience of life and it is this that the universe grows more complex as we approach the present it was simpler a million years ago it was simpler yet a billion years ago as you go backward in time the universe becomes more simple as you approach this golden moment process Complexity is layered upon complexity. Not only a planetary ecosystem, not only language-using cultures, but language-using cultures with high technology, with supercomputers, with the ability to sequence our own genome, on and on and on. That's self-evident. Equally self-evident is the fact that this process of complexification that informs all nature on all levels is visibly, palpably, obviously accelerating. And I don't mean so that glaciers retreat 50% faster or volcanism is occurring at 12% greater rate than a million years ago. I mean viscerally accelerating so that now a human life is more than enough of a window to see the entire global system of relationships 
in transformation. Well, I guess you could call me an extrapolationist. If I see a process which has been slowly accelerating for 12 billion years, it's hard for me to imagine any force which could step forward out of nowhere and wrench that process in a new direction. Rather, I would assume that this process of exponential acceleration into what I call novelty, what you might call complexity, is a law of being and cannot be retarded or deflected. But what does that mean? Because now, a human lifetime is more than enough time to see this process of rampant and spreading virus-like complexity. What does it mean? It seems to presage the absolute annihilation of everything familiar, everything uh, with roots in the past. And I believe that to be true. I think uh, that the planet is like some kind of organism that is seeking morphogenetic transformation. And it's doing it through the expression of intelligence and out-of-intelligence technology. Human beings are the agent of a new order of being. That's why, though it's obvious that we're higher mammals and some kind of primates and so forth and so on, you can look at us from another point of view and see that we're more like archangels than primates. We have qualities and concerns and anxieties that animals don't share. We are mercurially suspended between two different orders of being and our technologies, our fetishes, our religions, and my definition of technology is sufficiently broad that it includes even spoken language. All of our technologies uh, demand, push forward, toward, and make inevitable their own uh, obsolescence. So we are like caught in an evolutionary cascade. And, you know, people say, well, if the AI were to break loose, what would it look like? What would it be? What does human, what is, where does humanity fit into the picture? It's a little hard to imagine. Uh, you know, machines operating at a thousand megahertz confer automatic immortality on the mammalian nervous system if you can get it somehow uploaded, downloaded, cross-loaded into machinery because 10 minutes becomes eternity in a machine like that. So a kind of, a kind of false or pseudo-immortality opens up ahead of us as a kind of payoff for our devotion to the, to the program of machine evolution and machine intelligence. Now, some people say this is appalling and, you know, we should go back to the good old days, whatever the good old days were. Uh, to me, it's exhilarating, exciting, psychedelic, beautiful. It means that the human form, the human possibility is 
in the process of leaving history behind. History is some kind of an adaptation that lasts about, pick a number, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 years. No more than that. What is 20,000 years in the life of a biological species? We know that there were Homo sapiens sapien types 200,000 years ago. So history is some kind of an episodic response to a certain set of cultural dilemmas. And now it's ending. And print created a number of ideas which now have to be given up. Ideas like uh, the distinct nature, the distinct and unique nature of the individual, uh, the hierarchical, the necessary hierarchical structuring of society. All of these things are going to, if not have to be given up entirely, dramatically modified because the illusion that the self has simple location is uh, now exposed. The self does not have simple location. This is why you are your brother's keeper. This is why we all are responsible for each other. Uh, the idea that what happens in distant parts of the world makes no claim on my moral judgment or my uh, moral understanding uh, is wrong. The world, as revealed by quantum physics, as revealed by electronic experience, is what Leibniz called a plenum. It's all one thing. It's all connected. It's all of a part. So then I also wanted to point out that I mentioned earlier this thing about prosthesis and how the machines were prosthetic devices uh, extending human consciousness somewhat like psychedelics. That's the equation from a human point of view. But what is also equally true is that we are prosthetic devices for these machines. We are their eyes and ears in the world. We provide the code, we provide the constraints, we build the hardware. It is uh, a relationship of mutual benefit. It's not entirely clear that our contribution will always be um, creative in the sense of that our primate hand will be on the tiller of existence as it has been. But certainly we are part of this equation of transformation that is making itself felt. And I think the distinction between flesh and machinery, which is easily made now, will be less easy to make in the future. As we migrate toward the nanotechnological domains, the methodologies of production become much more like the processes of biology. For example, biology does all its miracles on this planet at temperatures below 115 degrees Fahrenheit. Organic life requires no higher temperature to build great whales, rain, uh, redwood trees, swarms of locusts, what have you. The high temperature 
heavy metal technologies that we have become obsessed with are extremely primitive and extremely toxic. That will all disappear as we model and genuflect in our manufacturing processes before the methods and style of nature, which is to pull um, atomic species from the local environment and then to assemble them atom by atom by atom. So this AI that is coming into existence is, to my mind, not artificial at all, not alien at all. What it really is, is it's a new conformational geometry of the collective self of humanity. And, uh, you know, I've always believed that there were, well, there are different models of what shamanism is. There's sort of a Jungian model, which is the shaman is someone who goes to the collective unconscious and manipulates the archetypes and heals by that means. Um, the model that I prefer is a mathematical model. The shaman is someone who simply, through extraordinary perturbation of consciousness, either through taking plant hallucinogens or manipulating diet or through flagellation and ordeal or by some means, perturbs consciousness to the point where the ordinary conformational geometries are blasted through, and then the shaman can see into the culturally forbidden zones of information. And if you think about shamanism for a moment, what, what do shamans do classically? They know where the game has gone. They are great weather prophets. They are very insightful in the matter of very small domestic hassles like who stole the chicken, who slept with the chief's wife, this kind of thing. And they cure. They cure. Well, if you analyze these abilities, it's clear to me they all indicate that they come from a common source. And the common source that they come from is uh, higher dimensional perception in a mathematical sense, not a metaphorical sense, in the sense of 4D perception. If you could see in hyperspace, you could see where the game will be next week. You could see the weather a month from now. You would know who stole the chicken. And any good doctor will tell you that if you're building a reputation as a physician, you must hone the intuitional ability to choose patients who won't die. <laughs> it's a call. Any doctor will tell you this. So this is what shamans are. They are 4D people. They are sanctioned members of the society who are allowed to put on the gloves, as it were, pull on the goggles, and look beyond the idols of the tribe, look beyond the myth. Well, in a way, as culture breaks down in multiculturalism and uh, the rise of the internet and a generation of people 
based on hallucinogenic plants and substances, we all are asked to assimilate some portion of this shamanic potential to ourselves. And it's about not blocking what is obvious. Nothing comes unannounced. I mean, this is the faith. Nothing comes unannounced. But idiots can miss the announcement. So it's very important to actually listen to your own intuition rather than driving through it. And this is not, to my mind, woo-woo. It's actually based on the observations of how life works, whether it's counterintuitive to uh, logical positivism and its fellow travelers or not. Then I want to leave you with just one last thought on all of this, which is, and this sort of harks back to the question of the similarities between the machines and the plants. And it's a, I'm sure you've heard this, I've heard it, it has different levels of being said and being heard. It's that the world is actually made of language. It isn't made of electrons and fields of force and scalar vectors and all of that fancy stuff. The world is made of language. The word is primary, more primary than the speed of light, more primary than any of the physical constants that uh, are assumed by science to be the bedrock of reality. Below that, surrounding and enclosing all those constructs of science is language, the act of signifying. And, you know, virtual reality is a very sexy, new sort of concept as normally presented, machine-sustained, immersive realities that trick your senses into believing you're in a world that you are, in fact, not in. But, in fact, the entire enterprise of civilization has been about building these virtual realities. The first virtual realities were at Ur and Shanagar and Chateau-Joyuk and Jericho. Uh, yes, stone and adobe is an intractable material compared to photons moving on a screen. But nevertheless, the name of the game is the same, which is to cast an illusion between man and reality to build a cultural truth in the in 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 the stead of the natural truth of the animal body and the uh, felt moment of immediate experience and this is my this is where i want to tie it up with this notion of the felt presence of immediate experience. This is, this transcends the culture, the machines, the drugs, the history, the momentum of evolution. It's all you will ever know and all you can ever know is the felt presence of immediate experience. Everything else arrives as rumor, litigant, advocate, supposition, possibility. The felt moment of immediate experience is actually the mind and the body aware of each other and aware of the flow
establishment of being through metabolism. And this, I think, is what the machines cannot assimilate. It will be for them a mystery as the nature of deity is a mystery for us. I have no doubt that before long there will be machines that will claim to be more intelligent than human beings and will argue brilliantly their position. It will become a matter of philosophical disputation whether they are or are not passing the Turing test and so forth and so on. But machines, I do not believe, can come to this felt moment of immediate experience. That is the contribution of the animal body to this evolutionary symbiosis, which I believe will end in the conquest of the universe by organized intelligence. That all this is crowded. I mean, we are fragile. This earth is fragile. A tiny slit anywhere along the line, and we could end up a smear in the shale, no more than the trilobites or the Ramferenki or all the rest of those who came and went. But given the sufficient cultivation of the potential of our technology, we can actually reach toward a kind of immortality, not human immortality, because that's a contradiction in terms, but immortality nevertheless based on the possibility of machines and the transcendent uh, ability of human beings to live and love and express themselves in the moment. And the psychedelics bring that to just a, a, a white-hot focus. And it's out of that white-hot focus that the alchemical machinery of transformation will be forged. And it will not be like the things which have come from the industrial economy. They will not be profane machines. They will be spiritual machines, alchemical gold, the universal panacea that Renaissance magic dared to dream of at the end of the 16th century. We are reaching out toward this mind child that will be born from the intellectual loins of our culture. And to my mind, it's the most exciting and transformative thing that has ever happened on this planet, and the miracle is that we are present not only to witness it, but to be part of it and to be raised up in an epiphany that will redeem the horror of history as nothing else can or could redeem the horror of history through a transformation of the human soul into a galaxy-roving vehicle via our machines and our drugs and the externalization of our souls. There could have been more jokes. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Did you notice that although this talk was given six years after the one that I played in my last podcast, well, Terrence is still very much into Marshall McLuhan. 
Now, my main uh, criticism of this talk is that at times it seemed to me that Terence was kind of blurring the boundary between intelligence, as in artificial intelligence, and self-reflecting consciousness, as in human consciousness. As you know, there's a big difference between intelligence and consciousness. Now, back when this talk was recorded, which was April of 1999, I think that probably most of us would have agreed with Terence's take on how long it might take for an AI to reach a level equal to human thinking. Now keep in mind that we're not talking here about a general artificial intelligence, but rather a very specific form of AI. Many specific different forms of AI, in fact. I'm sure that uh, you've heard of the ancient Chinese game of Go. It's uh, considered to be the oldest continuously played board game that uh, we humans still engage in. And according to Wikipedia, and I quote, Despite its relatively simple rules, goal is very complex, even more so than chess. Compared to chess, Go has both a larger board with more scope for play and longer games and, on average, many more alternatives to consider per move. End quote. So back in the 1980s, coders began developing programs to play this very complex game. But it wasn't until 2015 that the first AI Go player was able to beat one of the best human players in the world. Then just last year, AlphaGo beat the top human player in the world in three out of three matches. It had taken years of development, feeding millions of moves by hundreds of thousands of human players into its database for AlphaGo to be able to defeat the best human player in the world. Then something new happened. Google's DeepMind AI was set the task of creating a new version of AlphaGo, but without using any human input. It created this new version using only the rules of Go and playing itself. In just three days' time, this new version was created that has now defeated the earlier champion AI in 100 consecutive games. Now, if you give this example just a little thought, I think that you'll see how quickly this world could change once enough highly intelligent AIs get loose in the cloud. And yes, I know that this is a science fiction scenario, but you have to remember that when I was a kid, The wildest technological dream any of us had was that one day somebody would invent a two-way wrist radio like the one in the Dick Tracy comics. Don't forget, the iPhone is barely 10 years old. So, fasten your seatbelt because I think that we are about to move into the future even faster from here on out. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.